0: Well, it's good to see you again. Um, I'm going to start by saying Happy New Year. Uh, This is really the last day I get to say Happy New Year. I tend to say it too long into the New Year, so one of my New Year's resolutions is to stop saying Happy New Year after today. Um, But Happy New Year. I'm excited that you guys are all here. Um, New Year's are are a fun time when we think about kind of changing uh, maybe something about us or something about our life to make it better. Can you guys believe we're already six days into the New Year? Do you guys make any New Year's resolutions this year? Come on, let me see your hands. Somebody here, a few people. How many of you have broken those resolutions already? Don't be shy. Six days in, you woke up yesterday a little too tired to hit the gym, a little too tired to eat healthy, maybe eat right. It, the funny thing about when it comes to New Year's resolutions is we all have intentions to do this, and if you're anything like me, I just I aim low. That way I don't, I'm not too disappointed when inevitably we fail. Um, but when we come to, to the New Year and New Year's resolutions, it's really a time for self-improvement, right? We think about ourselves and the self maybe that we want to be, the self that we could be. Uh, we think about the possibilities of who we are as people and who we want to be as people. And we, we make some decisions about how to improve ourselves when it comes down to self-improvement. Oftentimes, it's, it's things like, you know, I, I want to get out of debt. I want to, you know stop paying so much on credit cards, I want to eat healthy, I want to get in shape, and those things are all important. Around this time of year, if you go to the gym, you notice a lot of of new people in the gym, and you think to yourself, who are all these new members? And the truth is, they're not new members, they're just people who show up in January. But inevitably, come February 1st, they're going to stop showing up. Uh, vitamin shops. This is like the new craze. Vitamin shops in January are jam-packed and wild. And Then come February, things begin to, to trickle off. They're not that excited about it. In a lot of churches, uh, January is like a big time of growth. We see a lot of attendance, and then it begins to trickle out. Because at the beginning of the year, we all have these intentions to do something we're not, to be something we're not. And it all kind of revolves around this idea. Really, it's around a question. And the question is this. What should I do about me? What should I do about me? What, what kind of me do I want to be? What, how can I change and become maybe a little bit more like I want to become? And, and, and I think that's a, a good question to ask. And oftentimes we start the new year off with, with thinking about this. You know, I'm going to lose some weight and I'm going to eat healthy. And I think that's important. You, you should eat healthy. You should get five servings of vegetables a day. And I'm, I'm going to pay off some debt and I'm going to get, in, you know, in control of my finances and save some money. And again, I think that's important. <clears throat> but as we think about the new year, and I want to kind of put a little, a little bit of a twist on this, I'm going to ask you a question that I think is, is so much better than this question. It's so much bigger and so much broader. I'm not going to ask it to you right now. What I want to do first is we're going to read a passage from the Scripture. And if you're new here, if this is your first time, welcome to Journey. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I'm going to do something today that we don't typically do. I'm going to read an entire chapter from, from Scripture and I know that, that might sound daunting to some of you. We don't typically do this. But if this is your first time, I think it's a great time to be a part uh, of this series, a perfect time to kind of come to church because you're going to hear this incredible story. And I, I say story, it's not like a Bible story. I don't believe there are Bible stories, because Bible stories give you the idea that it's, it's fictitious, right? That, that it's somewhere far away, a long, long time ago, once upon a time kind of thing. That's not this kind of story. This, this is history. We're going to follow a man named Nehemiah. This takes place uh, in the book of Nehemiah, which is in our Old Testament. Nehemiah writes down his story as he begins to make decisions and do something as God moves on his heart. The, the Jewish people found this story to be so captivating and so true that they included it in their, their Bible, their Jewish text, which we call the Old Testament, and then the New Testament authors found it so valuable that, the, uh, valuable that they put it together into what we call the Bible, and that's why we have it in our English Bibles today. We're going to look at the book of Nehemiah and follow this man, Nehemiah, and his incredible story as something begins to shift in his life, as he begins to move, and I think it kind of sets the stage for this great question that I think all of us need to have the answer to. Now, when we pick up with Nehemiah, this takes place uh, right around the time of the Jewish exile. We're going to go give you a quick history lesson. Um, the Jewish exile, you might have heard of that. That takes place in about 605 B.C. In about 605 B.C., the nation of Israel, as you can kind of picture Israel on the map if you know what it looks like, was divided into two parts. There was the, the northern part and the southern part, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Judah was invaded by the Babylons, by Nebuchadnezzar. These aren't fake people. These are all real people with some really weird names. Um, but this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, he comes in and he invades Judah. He takes over. He basically destroys everything. He destroys the, the, the temple, the city, the wall. He leaves it in ruins, and he takes all the best and the brightest out of Jerusalem, all of the, these people, these exiles, and he brings them back to work with him in Babylon. And Right after this happens, for, uh, for a, a few years, this goes on in, in Nebuchadnezzar, um, you, there's some famous stories that kind of revolve around this guy, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, some really weird names. But these are just stories about three guys that refuse to bow down to this king to honor their god. It's a really famous story. You may have heard of Daniel in the lion's den. That all happens around this time of the Jewish exile. Well, fast forward a few years, and then uh, this, this uh, nation of Persia, this Persian empire, they invade Babylon. They do away with Babylon, and, and Cyrus the Great kind of takes over. And he's looking about, around his like, vast empire. He sees all these Jewish people scattered, all these people from foreign lands scattered, and he kind of asks the question, why do we have all these Jews scattered throughout our lands? Let's just let them go home. So he writes a decree that anybody who was kind of invaded and land was taken, these Jewish people in particular, they have the right, if they want, to leave their land of exile and go back to Jerusalem. So some of them do. And this is where we're going to pick up with the story of Nehemiah. Some of these people begin to make their way back to this land, to Judah, to Jerusalem, to the city that was once this pinnacle of greatness, this thriving economy, the safe city with massive walls that was left in ruins and destroyed. These people begin to make their way back. And Nehemiah, now he's in, he's in Persia. He's meeting. He's uh, with this famous king called King Artaxerxes. He uh, gets FaceTime with him. He works for him. He sees him every day. Nehemiah is here working for the king in this very safe place, in this most powerful kingdom. And some people who have left and returned to Jerusalem come back to find Nehemiah. And this is where the story picks up. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. His words say this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah in the month of Kislev, And this is all an important way of saying this isn't a Bible story. This isn't like, you know, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Nehemiah is letting you know this happened. This happened in this month, he says, in the 12th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. He's saying here's the month, here's the year, here's the place. This is all real. You could document this. And when he's talking about the, the citadel of Susa or this city, the Persian Empire didn't have capital cities, but this was kind of like what you would picture a capital city. This was the it city. It was the place. It was the biggest. It was the, the brightest. It had you know, all the glitz and the glamour. It was beautiful. It had this thriving economy. It was safe. It was at the heart of the empire. This is where Nehemiah was. This is where he found himself in the 20th year in Kislev in the capital city of Susa. While I was in the city of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah, that was the southern kingdom of Israel, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant. He I questioned them about these people that had gone back to Jerusalem. He's curious, what's it like? How's, how's Jerusalem, how's this, this city doing? And those that had survived the exile, because these people were taken out of their land, brought to this land of Babylon and then Persia. And then on their way back, they had, you know, they have kids, they have grandkids, they have possessions. They were in exile and they're leaving. And Nehemiah is curious how are things going with the people? And he asks about the city of Jerusalem. Hey guys, I, like, you can almost like, taste his, his curiosity. You can sense it. Like, h- How's it going? How's the city? What do the walls look like? What's the temple like? Are, are, are things back to normal? Is it growing? Is it, is it kind of the, the things I heard about? There's a good chance that Nehemiah has never been in Jerusalem. He's been in captivity for over 70 years. So he's probably never seen the city. He's never seen the walls. He's only heard fairy tales about the temple and how beautiful it was and how big it was and all these awesome things that happened in the land. Nehemiah's never seen it. But but he's heard stories, and he's so curious. Hey, hey, guys, tell me about our city. Tell me about our land. Is it everything I thought it was? And they answered him back. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Hey, hey Nehemiah, like, like it's great we got to go home and we're, we're thrilled, but things aren't going very well. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah, things, things are going rather terribly. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burning with fire. It's another way of saying, hey, we're like an open-door city. People can come and go as they please. We're not safe. We're not secure. There's other great people groups and cities and nations around us. Like We don't really have anything, Nehemiah. They can come and go as they please. What was awesome is left in shambles. The temple's rebuilt, but it's not as glamorous as we thought it was. Nehemiah, it's not as good as we hoped it would be. And then Nehemiah includes this powerful statement. He says, when I heard these things i sat down and i wept it's like he's curious about all this information and they're telling him and, and you can almost imagine his, his initial response would have been hey guys i'm i'm really sorry to hear that you, you know that that sucks to be you, like, you know, I wouldn't want to be you, here's a check, hope things get better for you, but, but, but I'm okay, I, I'm safe, I'm in the capital city of the greatest empire, I serve the most powerful men in the world, and I get FaceTime with them, I have no concern about where my food comes from, I have no concern about what's going to happen day to day, my family's safe, I'm safe, this is a cush job, like, like I, I'm sorry things aren't going well for you, but things are going great for me. That wasn't his response at all. He heard what was going on in his homeland, the homeland that he's never seen, and his heart was broken, and he wept. His heart was broken, and he wept. For some days, he said, I mourned and fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then he journals this incredible prayer he has with God. He says this, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, and it's almost like Nehemiah's trying to remind God, hey, hey, God, you remember that covenant you made with us? You're still that God that made the covenant, right? You're still the God that honors his covenant, the God that keeps his promises. You said you'd never lie to us. You said you'd never break your promise. You, you remember that God, right? It's like he's trying to you know, bribe God a little bit. You, you remember all that stuff, right? God, you remember you made it. You remember you would keep it. He keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands, Because the covenant that was made was a little bit like give and take. Like if you honor me, if you obey my law, if you obey my commands, I'm going to give you this incredible land and I'm going to make your name great and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. But if you don't honor me, if you break my laws and you abandon me, if you break my laws and you embarrass me, if you break my laws and you're not the light to the world that I want you to be, I'm going to take the land from you. I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to separate you. What could have been great, what could have been awesome, what could have blessed the entire world, I'm going to take from you if you break my laws and abandon me. Nehemiah goes on. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant as praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And then he does something really interesting. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites he's confessing the sins for an entire people group, for an entire nation. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, I'm not pointing fingers. It's not his fault. It's not her fault. It's not you know my, my grandfather's fault. We are all at fault, God. We have committed sins against you, and we have acted very wickedly towards you. It's another way of, of him to say, hey, we deserve this. We deserve to be kicked out of our land. We deserve to have the land taken from us. You said very clear in your covenant that if we honored you and we obeyed your laws, that you would bless us and give us this land. And we didn't do it. We broke your laws. We abandoned you. We embarrassed you. We weren't the light to the world that we should have been. You had every right to take that land away from us. We didn't deserve it. But he goes on. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Because that's where all of this started, when God gave the law to Moses. And then he kind of asked God a question. You remember Moses, right? You remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, and now he's going to actually quote God to God, which is a little weird. He's reminding God of what God said to Moses, and he's going to quote God to God. These were God's words that he reminds him of. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, which is exactly what happened. That's why Nehemiah is in Susa and Persia and not in Judah. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and check this out, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your people are exiled to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Because to them, the people of Israel were God's nation. And the city of Jerusalem was God's city. And inside the city was a temple, and in the temple was the Holy of Holies. And they believed that's where God's presence resided. That if you obey me, I will gather them back from the farthest horizon. As far as they've been scattered, I will pull them back to this place. And I will once again make them great. They, talking about the Israelites, they are your servants, God. And your people, whom you redeemed. And now he's reminding them about what he did with Moses. You probably heard that story of Moses where Moses came in and, and you know, the whole let my people go kind of thing and there were these plagues and all these awful things happened and then Pharaoh let the people go from Egypt and God began to take the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land, into Judah, in, into that great land where he was going to make them a blessing to the world. He's reminding them. You remember all that work you did? You remember what you had to do to set your people free, to redeem them and bring them out of exile? Do you remember all you did for these people, God, by your great strength and your mighty hand? Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And then he asked God for something very specific. He says, give your servant success. I think this is so awesome. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And he's referring to King Artaxerxes because in just a moment, Nehemiah has been so moved by what's happening in Jerusalem or maybe what's not happening. The city's not flourishing. The city's not growing. The economy isn't isn't flourishing. The walls haven't been rebuilt. Nehemiah is so moved. His heart is so broken. He's going to approach King Artaxerxes and say, hey king, I'm so grateful that I'm here with you. I love this job. I love this city. I mean, it's, it's a It's a cush job. This is awesome. I love that I'm here and I love that I get to serve you. But here's what I'm gonna ask you to do, King. I'm gonna ask you to give me an indefinite leave of absence. I'm gonna ask you to let me go back to the city of Jerusalem, to to the land of my forefathers, and I'm gonna ask you to let me go and rebuild the walls and rebuild the city and get things moving again because no one's doing it. And this was a very like scary thing to do because you didn't ask kings for favors. Right? Kings just did whatever they wanted. That's why they were the king. You didn't ask a king a favor. You didn't want to owe the king a favor. I mean, it was nerve-wracking. It was, there, was some, there was some fear there. And then even, I think even the greater fear is, what if the king says yes? What if he lets me go? Then I'm going to a place I've never seen, a place I don't know, to do something I've never done. I'm, I'm not an architect. I'm not an engineer. But we've got to rebuild this wall. We've got to put things back together. And this story is so incredible, but it has no miracles in it. It's a story of hard work and perseverance and vision and values. And Nehemiah saw what could be and what isn't, and he said, I've got to do something about that. King, would you let me go? King, would you excuse me and give me a leave of absence and let me go to this land and do something that needs to be done that nobody else is doing? And then he concludes this chapter with this great statement. He says, I was cut to the king. Now I'm gonna ask you the question. Are you ready? Okay, I want you to say we're ready. Are you ready? ready. You you at home, are you ready? I want you to answer, we're ready. Are you ready? ready. Okay, here's the question. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? When you look at your community, when you look at your city, when you look at your neighborhood, when you look at, at the school system and children, when you look at families, when you look at our society as a whole or maybe our nation as a whole, what breaks your heart? I mean, what's capturing you when you look around you, when you see things that just don't, they don't sit right with you, and you look at your community, and, and, and maybe it's just on your street, maybe it's your neighborhood, maybe it's your city, maybe it's your school. What breaks your heart? What keeps you up at night? What bothers you when you think about it? So much so that you try not to think about it because it's disturbing, it keeps you up and it keeps you awake. And you think, somebody has got to do something about this. It's not okay that this continues. Somebody's got to come in and do something to change this because this shouldn't be happening. What breaks your heart? What do you sit back at night and think, man, I wish somebody would do this, but, but I'm a nobody. I, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't change this. I can't change the world. But but, man, I wish somebody would, God, would you just send somebody to do something to change this? Because this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be allowed to happen. What breaks your heart? See, it's a dangerous question. It's a provocative question. It's a little bit of a disturbing question. Because for some of you, you're sitting here and you know exactly what it is. It's broken your heart for years and for years and for years but you've never done anything about it. And as we look at this new year, sometimes we get so wrapped up in the idea of of what should I do about me? How should I change me? And I think perhaps the best question you could ask is this. What breaks my heart? See, because we know this to be true. We all know this to be true. That if you really want to become a better person this year, then you need to do something to make the world a better place for someone else. There's a Latin proverb that says this, what man is a man who does not leave the world or does not make the world a better place? What man is a man who's in this world but does not leave this world better? What breaks your heart? Now there's something I I know about you and, and I know it's true for you because it's really, it's true for all of us. That the people that that you admire the most, the people that you think about, the people that you read biographies about, the people that you tell your kids about, they aren't the people that just kind of maintain their weight, right? You don't read stories about somebody who who had like $12,000 worth of debt and they got out of debt and you're thinking, you got to read this book. They paid off $12,000 of debt. That's awesome. It's so life-changing and inspiring, I think that's important, and I think you should do that. But that's not who we read about. That's not inspiring. People are able to do that all around the world. What inspires us, what captivates us, the people we read about are the people that do these incredible things with nothing, the people that risk everything to see something accomplished, the people that, that, that do the things that we wish we could do, but man, I, I just, I don't know that I can. I, I'm... I'm I'm too poor, I'm too busy, or I'm too middle class, or I've got families and commitments, and and I I just, I, I don't know that I can. I'm a nobody. Everybody was a nobody until they decided to move on what broke their heart. And then they became a somebody, and we read about them, and we talk about them. What breaks your heart? What stirs your heart and your emotions? What keeps you up? What do you think about all the time? And it's just, man, I wish, I wish somebody would do something about that. I wish somebody would end that. I wish somebody would get involved and do something different. What breaks your heart? I'm going to predict your future a little bit. Now, I'm not a fortune teller, but I know this is true because I've seen this play out time and time again. If you don't get involved, if you just kind of sit back and say, "Hey, that's a good question, but I don't want to answer, it. it's a little bit too disturbing. I'm a little bit too comfortable. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm willing to take the risk, Jim. I, if you don't do that, here's what 2019' is going to look like to you. Here's what your future is going to hold. You're going to sit down and you're going to watch TV, and you're going to blame. And you're going to blame, blame, blame. And it's going to be everyone else's fault right? Well, somebody should have done something like that. That's the president's fault. So, so that shouldn't be, but that's Congress's fault. That shouldn't be allowed, but that's our governor's fault. This shouldn't be allowed in schools, but that's the school system's fault. This shouldn't happen, but that's the principal's fault. This shouldn't be allowed in our neighborhood, but it's that family's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. You're going to sit, and you're going to blame, and you're going to blame, and you're going to blame. But, but here's the truth that we all know. People who blame things don't change things. We sit and we blame, and we think we're comfortable here. But but blaming doesn't change anything. It's not a strategy for change. It's really a strategy to keep things the same. Because it's really easy and it's really comfortable for me to sit in my cushioned, lazy boy recliner and complain about the world than it is to take a step and get involved in the world and try to change it. And you're going to blame. And you're going to sit in front of the TV, and you're going to call your family around. Family meeting. You're going to put the news on, and then you're going to put it on mute. And you're going to say, now, kids, listen up. Here's what's wrong with the world because I know what's wrong with the world and I have all the answers about what's wrong with the world and it's always somebody else's fault. But you're never going to do anything to get involved and change it. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart so much that if you were to get involved, it would be the thing that you constantly go to and you blame somebody else for? What is God trying to do in you and through you? to change somebody else's world. Blaming doesn't help. Blaming is not going to change anything. Sitting back and being comfortable isn't going to change anything. Answering this question just might begin to change things. What breaks your heart? Now, I don't expect you to have an answer for it today. As a matter of fact, I don't because we're going to talk about it over the next two weeks, three weeks. But I think at the end of this, you need to have an answer. What breaks your heart? Now, if you're not a Christian and you're with us today, up up to this point, you can roll with this. You can think, yeah, that story's great, that's motivating, it's inspiring. I, I, I get everything you're saying. I don't need to believe in God to believe that somebody should do something about things that bother them, that we should be involved in making the world a better place. You can completely roll with all of that up to this point. And if your heart's broken for something, that's awesome, and you should do something about it. But I can't tell you what to do. But for those of you that are Christians, and I'm going to take it even a step further than that because that can mean a whole lot in our society. For those of you that say, I'm a Jesus follower, that I love him, and I want to spend the rest of my life becoming more like him. For those of you that identify that way, you have no excuse. We have no excuse. At some point along the way, we've got to enter in and bring change to our society. We've got to make the things around us better because that's what Jesus did. We say it all the time. I said it already today that following Jesus makes your life better and makes you better at life. Everything Jesus touches, he made better. Read through the gospels. Read about the interactions with Jesus. Every person he meets, every city he goes into, every every group of people he encounters, he leaves them better than where he found them. And for those of us that are Christ followers that say we want to be like him, we have no choice. We've got to get involved and we've got to make things better. We've got to make our world better. We've got to make this people group better. We've got to make whatever it is that's breaking our heart better. Because that's what Jesus did. As a matter of fact, we're motivated around this one thought. And we talk about this a lot around this thing that Jesus taught. Jesus taught us this, that devotion to God is measured measured in terms of our devotion to others. And this stood completely in contrast to this old temple system, to this old way of doing religion. And this is not just Judaism, but any kind of paganism or, you know, the religion of the Athens or, or the Greeks. That there was this idea that, that if we were going to get God on our side, we had to go to the temple, we had to offer a sacrifice, and then we'd go back and we'd live our life and hope God was on our side. And then Jesus shows up and he says, no, 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 no. That's the old way of doing things. That didn't even work. Here's the new way of doing things. It's not, about, it's not about like doing something to get God on your side. You don't have to try and earn God's favor that way. God is with you and God is delighted in you when you're concerned about the people around you because to God, the people around you are all his children. He loves each and every one of you. Jesus said it doesn't matter where they are or what they look like or where they're from, that every person was created in the image of God. God loves them, and because God loves them, we love them. Because people matter to God, people matter to us. You need to be concerned and you need to be involved that way. I'm turning this whole system upside down. I'm changing everything. It's no longer about trying to earn God's favor and not worry about how you are with people, but just worry about how you are with God. You said, no, no, I'm changing all of that. You want to know how you are with God? How are you with other people? Are you involved? Are you making their life better? Everywhere you go, things should be better. Your friends, because you're there, things should be better. Your work, because you work there, things should be better. Your neighborhood, because you're there, your street should be better. Because you're a follower of Christ. What breaks your heart? This other thing Jesus taught. Is, and this is hard in our society to kind of capture this because we have remnants of this still in our culture, but I think we're going further and further away from it. But outside of our culture, this isn't the way the world works. This isn't natural. It's not intuitive. As a matter of fact, this kind of is completely countercultural to how like, by default we behave. But Jesus taught us this. That people have inherent value, not ascribed value. That people have inherent value. That because they're people, they're valuable that there is no no class system, there's no order system of of, your skin color or how much money you make or what family you reside from or what land you come from, that all of that is kind of done away with, That, that that's all ascribed value. But that's not why people matter. It's not ascribed value. It's not based on the color of your skin. It's not based on your bank account. It's not based on how in shape you are. It's not based on your last name, that you have inherent value because your creator created you in his image and you're his child. So every person matters. Every person you come in contact with, every person you're face to face with, they matter. They matter to God and they should matter to you. And that's why throughout history, Christians have gotten involved and made a difference in, in, in the world we were a part of the abolitionist movement, we were a part uh, of the civil rights movement, we, we were a part, Christians, we're, we're the group of people that decided we're gonna go into places and we're gonna build hospitals, not for Christian sick kids or Christian sick people, but for sick people in general. We're gonna build schools, not for Christian kids, but for kids' kids. We're gonna build churches, not for church people, but for people people. We're gonna enter into whatever that problem is and we're gonna do something about it, not for people that identify as Christians, but for people that identify as people. Because every person matters to God. Therefore, every person should matter to us. When we think about what breaks our heart, when we look at people, when we watch the news, when we read the paper, when we see the things pop up on our feed, what is it that motivates and breaks you? When you read about a group of people, what is it that just doesn't let you go to sleep at night? Perhaps it's God trying to get a hold of your heart. Perhaps it's God trying to do something significant in this world but he's trying to do it through you. And for years, we've stepped back and said, well, somebody else can do it, somebody with power, somebody with, with money, somebody with authority, but I'm nobody. But as we've seen all throughout history, God uses nobodies to change the world, and then we read about them as somebodies later on. What breaks your heart? What keeps you up? What's God trying to say? I want you to do something new this year that's going to change the world of someone else. See, for Christians, we can't just say, well, they're just somebody else will solve the problem. Because by following Jesus, we've picked up the mantle to say, nope, people matter to God, people matter to me. I can't treat people like, like they fall into some category, like they have some ascribed value. People have inherent value. Every person matters to God. That's why when Jesus came, he died for the sins of the whole world, not the sins of the wealthy. What did, what did John say? The most famous scripture in all of the Bible, "For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever, man, woman, child. Any skin color, any nationality, any, anywhere they fall in class, whether they're rich or poor or middle class or, or upper middle class or the filthy rich, for any person, for whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life because every single person matters to God. And because they matter to God, as a Christ follower, they matter to us. What breaks your heart? What I find really interesting is that even our nation was even birthed out of this idea. Right? In the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, he, he kind of crafted uh, the, the, the first uh, draft of this, and the, the, maybe this first in particular part of the Declaration of Independence. He, he writes it this way, and we've heard these words before. We hold the, these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And we know what comes next, but think about these words. Sacred and undeniable. There, there's no denying it. These, these are, are just like fundamental Holy, sacred, undeniable truths. And then Benjamin Franklin comes along, and he finds a way to shorten it for us, and he says it this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident. You know what that basically means? That means if you think about this long enough, every single person in the world should go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that, that's true. It's self-evident. Every person should be able to agree that these things are true. Here's the whole statement. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men, that all women... That all children, that every nationality and every skin color and every, any place you fall on the spectrum of a financial life, that every person, every single person is created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That every person, because they're a person, has an inherent value and that inherent value means they matter to God, therefore they matter to us. What breaks your heart? The other interesting thing about Nehemiah's story is Nehemiah's heart was broken by divine design. Christians believe this, I think we all kind of believe this, that history is leading somewhere, that it's linear, and, and it's going somewhere, it's taking us to a place that God kind of works through these situations to take people somewhere. Well, Nehemiah had no idea what kind of hung in the balance of his decision. He had no idea how all this was gonna to fit together. But here's a, a little history for you. About 70 years before Nehemiah decided to go back to Jerusalem and build the wall and rebuild the city, God moved on another man's heart. A man with the name, uh, the name was Zerubbabel. And he basically spoke to Zerubbabel and said, here's what I want you to do. Go back into Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And imagine what he's thinking. Well, no one's there. It's left for waste. Go back into the city and rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel went. And about 14 years before Nehemiah went in to rebuild the wall, God moved on another man's heart named Ezra. He said, Ezra, I want you to go back to that temple that was just rebuilt, and I want you to begin teaching people there about the law of God. And Ezra went. And then Nehemiah went. And before Nehemiah's life, God had this plan. And even after Nehemiah would do this, there was this plan to reestablish this city so that through this city, the world would be blessed. And about 450 years later, Jesus walked through the gates that Nehemiah rebuilt. He was the final prophet, priest, and king. He was the the Savior, the Messiah of the world. He walked into the city that was rebuilt. He walked to the temple that was rebuilt, and he stood in that temple, and he declared before the whole world, before all of Jerusalem, I am the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, and I've come for you. Nehemiah had no idea what hung in the balance. He had no idea how all of this was working together to make a difference in the world forever. Then let me ask you this one. Maybe let me remind you that your future has so much more at stake, has so much more potential than you even realize. That God can do so much more through you than you even think and can even dream about. But you have no idea what hangs in the balance. You have no idea what hangs in the balance. You have no idea who hangs in the balance. If you'd be willing to say yes to whatever it is that God's breaking your heart on. I had no idea. I know from personal experience, that some of you might know, about six years ago, God took me and a group of people and he began to break our heart. We looked around and we said, really, there aren't any good churches here for people that don't like church. For too long, the church has been kind of weird and, and kids would go to church and, and they would say a prayer and they would believe in Jesus and then for the next 10 years, we taught them how to hate church. And then when they're old enough, they said, hey, I'm gonna do exactly what you taught me. I'm gonna apply it. I am never coming back because this place is terrible. And adults who who maybe knew God as a child but wanted to to reconnect to God later, there was no place to do it because church was weird. Church was for church people, they didn't fit in. And that broke our hearts. We looked out and we said, Something's not right. Something's got to change. We believed that a child should wake up in the morning and want to go to church, that a kid should wake up and wake their parents up because they're so excited to be here. We believe students should want to be here. So we said, Something's got to change something broke our heart. And we went and we got permission from our church. And the group of us, we started doing some things. And about two years ago, some of you were here when we started. A little over two and a half years ago, we decided to make a church for those kinds of people. A church not for church people, a church for people who wanted nothing to do with church. A church where kids would come and want to be here every single Sunday. And sometimes even now, two and a half years in, I ask myself, what if we didn't do this? What if we just decided in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the risk? What if we just decided to go take another job at another church somewhere? That was a lot easier. There were offers on the table. Well, what if we decided to move because that was the possibility? What if we decided it just wasn't worth the risk as we sat around the table and that group that decided I would rather fail and die trying this than never do it at all? What if we decided it wasn't worth it? We didn't know what hung in the balance. But every time we do a baptism, every time I talk to somebody who walks through the doors with a smile on their face saying, I, I, I just don't know what's different, but I feel like I can belong here, even though I'm really not sure I believe what you believe. Every time I talk to your children, I've got a chance to baptize a few. And they tell me about how this place has just made their life better and they love their small group and their teacher and their friends and they can't wait to be here. They literally wake their parents up and bug them and drive them crazy till they come. I've talked to some of you we said, the only reason I came back is because my kid wouldn't stop asking me to come. <laughs> what if I just decided, hey, it's not worth the risk. Somebody else should do that. I'm just gonna go get a job somewhere else. You See, I had no idea what hung in the balance. I have no idea who hung in the balance. And neither do you. You have no idea that whatever it is that God's beginning to stir in your heart, you have no idea who or what hangs in the balance. But if you did my guess is, you would say without a shadow of a doubt, it's worth it. It's worth the risk. I've got to get involved. I've got to change it. It's no longer me sitting back and complaining and blaming and saying, somebody else should do something. I've got to do something now to change this. What breaks your heart? See, you know what I find so interesting about Nehemiah's story is is how he ends it. He ends it with this incredible line, I was the cupbearer to the king. And I think that's his way of telling us, hey, hey, my heart broke for the people of Israel, for the, for the city of Jerusalem. And I decided this was my one opportunity. I was cut to the king. I, I had resource. I had influence. I, I could steward the things around me. I could talk to this king and convince him, and he could write a letter that would give me a free pass all the way to the city to do this work. I, I had position, finally, this was my opportunity. I can do something to change the world what if God's just looking for the same thing from you this year? And we spend the whole year thinking about, well, what can I do about me? What should I do about me? How can I make me better? What if the bigger question for you is, what can you do around you? How can you make your world better? If you want to make this the best year of your life, if you really want to become a better person, do something that makes the world around you a better place. And I know you might be thinking, Jim, but this is disturbing like, I, you don't know my wife. She's already thinking about these things, and now you're just giving her the green light to go and do something crazy. You don't know my husband. He, he, he sits up, and he debates these things in his head all the time, and now you're just giving him, the, like, he's just going to go do something crazy. I just got my kid back into school, and now you're, gonna, you're saying this, and he's going to go and run away from school. This isn't a green light to go do something irrational. Actually, what I want you to do is just sit on it for a week. Sit on it and come back next week, but have an answer to this question. What breaks your heart? What breaks my heart when I think about the world, and I think about families, and I think about the community? What keeps me up at night and doesn't let me sleep? Maybe, perhaps, that's God trying to do something in you and through you to make the world a better place. What breaks your heart? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to come back next week for part two of this. If you're in a small group, I want you to answer this question. You don't have to divert your whole study. I just want you to ask this question in your group. What breaks my heart. Come back next week for an answer for that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, God, for this incredible story as Nehemiah just captured everything that happened, God, what was going on in his heart, even this incredible prayer he had with you. God, I thank you that you still do those same kind of things today. God, to inspire us to do something different in the world, to make the world a better place, because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. And I pray that we would do the same thing in this world, God, that we would come in, that we would make the world a better place, that just as God's heart broke for us and for our sin that he sent his son into the world, I pray that our heart would break for someone else and you would send us into the world to do something significant and unique to make this year the best year we've ever had. God, not just by changing ourselves, not just by losing weight or, or God, getting on a financial plan, but by making somebody else's world better. I pray you'd give us the wisdom to see it and the courage to do it when we get to that point. In Jesus' name, amen.